Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 155 of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Land. And I am Kayla Moria. And we are a paranormal podcast. Yes, we are. Kayla. Yes. How's it going? It's going great. I need to sneeze. Hold on. False alarm. <laughs> uh, it's yeah, it's it's great. I got to see my Travis last weekend. Oh, nice! And uh, I and then I hung out a bunch in his house, and then I went home and hung out in my house, and everything's good. Nothing, nothing exciting to report. Oh, all right. So, is it getting warmer at work? Can we have? Some sort of update, like I mean, I guess yeah, I guess because it's getting warmer outside. Yeah, it is getting warmer at work. You're not frozen to the bone anymore. No, no, no. I'm just frozen on like a light layer underneath the skin. I'm yeah, I'm frozen to the muscle, but not to the bone. That's good. That's you know, that's a huge improvement. (laughs) How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty good you know just full of sludge and all but it's what can you do <laughs> I, I love that you're like i'm feeling pretty good and you're wearing your vamper oh <laughs> yeah i wear this all year round accidental pun yeah it makes me pretty happy. good i've been walking around telling evie how she's perfect and she seemed okay with it at first but now she keeps like looking at me like i'm an idiot like i'm the i'm not a cool mom and she's just like, ew. Ew. Well, that's how Fizzgig looks at me all of the time. So if that makes you feel any better. I mean, she didn't used to look at me that way. <laughs> well, Fizzgig is 10, which is not super old for a cat. It's not young either. But it's not young. And then with her illnesses. Oh, yeah. Like, I've decided that she's now a like a, like an old lady. Like, she looks at me. Like an unimpressed great grandmother. <laughs> She's like, I can't believe you did that to your hair. She is my child and my great grandmother wrapped <laughs> all into one. Yep. <laughs> so it's weird when cats outage you. Somehow. Yeah, I know. I I hate it. I'm like, you are the child. I feed you. I buy. But I suppose you know what? At that point, it's like. When you take in, uh, you know, a grandparent into your house to start taking care of them because they can't take care of themselves. We just skipped the whole, like, adulthood phase and went right from one to the other. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> Evie's not that old yet, but it's coming and I can see it in her face. Well, before we start into it, should I tell you some jokes? Tell me some jokes. All right. Um, let's start with this one. What do you call two witches who live together? Broommates. You got that one. It is broommates. I did get one. It only took a very long time <laughs> for you to guess one. Why do vampires always seem sick? I don't know. Because they're always coughing. Uh, I thought it was going to be something about blood and it wasn't. <laughs> nope. Just always coughing. Always coughing. Uh, well, this, this c- card set that... My grandma gave gave me has had just it's been endless sources of. Fun. I know. Are we halfway through yet? Uh, no. <laughs> well, if you think about it, it's a deck of cards, so I'm going to imagine there's 52 cards, mm-hmm. and oh no, so it's 50 cards. So that does mean I mean we've got almost a year's worth of jokes here. Yeah. Well. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, should we uh, crack into it? Let's do it. Okay. So we've been thinking and we've been saying this entire time, uh-huh. not just in January, in December too, uh, that there would be four episodes of True Crime January. Because that's how it always has been. I know. And that this would be the fourth and final episode, True Crime January 2024, except that last night, (laughs) while prepping for my research session, I realized that the 31st of January is also a Wednesday. So five weeks of True Crime January. So surprise, (laughs) you get one more True Crime January episode next week, and then we are back to our regularly scheduled programming. Alrighty. Uh, How we missed that, I honestly have no idea. We both looked at the calendar multiple times. It's written all over the place. I think my brain just forgets that there are months where there will be like three or five weeks of one specific day. It's not always, but sometimes. I know, but we also like we both looked at the calendar. But anyway, we're we're rolling with it. We're rolling with it. Um, We had picked out a very specific topic for our last week, uh, which this is not apparently. So very last minute we pivoted. Pivot. Pivot. But actually, it turns out it's perfect because next week Mm -hmm. will be our three-year anniversary. That's exactly. That's why we didn't just go with the OG topic we had picked out. Yeah. Because we're saving it. We're saving it. It's special. special. So for our fourth, but not yet final, week of True Crime January, we bring you The Sayer House. A.K.A. the Wedgwood Inn, A.K.A. Jimmy's Haunt Steak and Seafood Grill, A.K.A. the TD Bank Morristown, trademark America's most convenient bank. Not sponsored. All right, so the Sayer House was built in Bottle Hill, New Jersey, now known as Madison, New Jersey, by Daniel Sayer in 1745. Okay. His son, Deacon Ephraim Sayer, homesteaded the property during the Revolutionary War and opened his house to both officers and soldiers in need of shelter, including, famously, General Anthony Wayne, one of the United States founding fathers who used the house as his headquarters in 1777. Okay. For the record, I have no idea who that was. Me neither. Because he was not a character in Hamilton the Musical. I what? feel like if he was really that important, he should have been included. I, I mean, fully agree with that, I mean, actually. Like, like it's he's not in the musical. There's not a character that I simped over named Anthony Wayne. Yeah, Anthony Wayne. And so, but you know who was in that musical? Was it Alexander Hamilton? Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> His name was Alexander Hamilton. And fun fact... Uh, the New York Times article that I used as one of the references for my part of this story yeah, uh, said, it is said that Alexander Hamilton proposed to his fiance in a second floor room there. Eliza! <laughs> Eliza! Ooh! I do, I do, I do, I do! Yeah! So that was my, that was the one thing that I, I specifically... Ignored all the true crimey stuff, but when that popped up, because I saw it, like, I was like, I can't ignore this. Brittany doesn't even know the songs. Yeah, I was 
like, I scrolled through and I was like, did that say Alexander Hamilton? It did. What did that say? <laughs> this house is just chock full of founding fathers. But apparently not the ones I care about. Just Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, I had to Google who Anthony Wayne was. <laughs> and he's like, oh, he's an American. He's a soldier. He's a general. He's a founding father. And I was like, he is? Our listeners who like history are going to be very disappointed in us. I don't know. I was looking at the list of founding fathers and I was like, I don't know any of these guys. <laughs> Yay to Harbors and Isanti. I know our <laughs> educational system. <laughs> Although in all fairness, I don't think it's important. So legit. Like with the constitution or whatever, like I, I know more about that than I do about the old white men who signed it. Yep. And I'm okay with that. Yep. All right. So after this, after it was used as a as a headquarters for this founding father we've never heard of, things get a little bit wonky when it comes to the facts okay. of this story. And it's mostly because all of the sons of Daniel Sayer had sons of their own. Mm -hmm. And then they named them after their uncles. So there's a lot of combo names that make it confusing yes okay <laughs> yes it's a very confusing family tree and i tried really hard to match up like the names and the spouses and the birthdays with the story um and it didn't always match because i think that the folks who wrote some of my sources were like oh samuel sayer he married elizabeth but there are like five samuels <laughs> and one of them did in fact marry an elizabeth uh but not the samuel from the crime that we're talking about today Okay, so, so if your names don't match up when you do like the haunting aspect, I and and the person who actually is Samuel's wife ha goes by two names. <laughs> so so it's not even that the facts are really muddy as it's just there's too many similarities. So it made it hard for people to report the correct stuff because yes. they weren't specifying which of these Samuels, et cetera, et cetera, that they were talking about. Right. And like. Samuel from the story, and I know I'm jumping ahead, but his dad was also named Samuel. <laughs> so, like, it's just, it's just yeah. wonky. Uh, they had, like, nine family names, and they used one every generation. Sometimes, like, two brothers would have sons, and they'd name them the same names. That's, that's stupid. So then the birthdays are really close to each other because they're cousins. I know. That we get on people sometimes about naming their kids ridiculous names. But you know what? This doesn't happen as often since people started naming their kids ridiculous names. I know. Especially because, like, one, records are easier now. Yep. Everything is documented. But, yeah, it was it was rough. So up until a certain point, my next two paragraphs are me kind of guessing. Okay. Ephraim was the deacon who who helped the uh, Revolutionary War guys. And I think that it's Ephraim's nephew is the John Sayer who eventually moved into the house. And John married a woman named Sarah. And the two had several children, their firstborn being Samuel, who would eventually inherit the house from his father. Okay. This Samuel will also get married, and then him and his wife, Margaret, would have four children of their own, one of them being Samuel Sayer, the second or 
get, I guess. I don't know. Uh, and finally, we're to our main characters. Okay. And from this point on, I know what's happening. On the night of May 11th, 1833, Antoine LeBlanc murdered Judge Samuel Sayer, his wife Sally, and their servant, Phoebe, in the only triple homicide in Morristown history. Oh. We Early. really went from like zero to 60 on that one. Early in like, so the only one, and it happened right away. Yeah, 1833. <laughs> so LeBlanc was a 33-year-old French native who, after being disowned by his own family, moved from France to New York in 1833. Despite speaking little to no English, within a few weeks of his arrival to the United States, he found a job in Morristown, New Jersey, working for Judge Samuel Sayer and his family. And by job, I mean that he wasn't paid, but he was allowed to live in the small dank cellar of their farmhouse in exchange for chopping wood and feeding the hogs. So he was able to get by, but this was not a cushy job. And I'm going to air quote job because he didn't get paid. Yep. So after two weeks or so of taking orders from the Sayers, LeBlanc had had enough. He was just over it. He's like, you can't tell me what to do. You cannot tell me what to do. <laughs> it's been a long time since I went on a random <laughs> accent rant. You cannot tell me what to do. You cannot tell me what to do. I put on you. Poo poo. Anyway. <laughs> so on the night of May 11th, LeBlanc found himself at one of the local hotels drinking a brandy and quote unquote, passing away the time until the people had gone to bed. When LeBlanc returned to the farm later that evening, he took a shovel and bludgeoned Samuel and Sally Sayer to death with it. He then buried the bodies in a pile of manure. Okay. He also murdered their servant Phoebe before ransacking the Sayer house. From cash and jewelry to clothing, LeBlanc grabbed everything that he could before stealing the Sayer's horse and making his getaway. So a murder robbery. Yep. After the murders were discovered, a posse was formed and LeBlanc was tracked down and quickly captured at a tavern in Hackensack Meadows with the Sayers' belongings in his possession. Everything's Le legal in New Jersey. <laughs> That's a line from Hamilton. Is it? <laughs> yeah. They talk about how there's a scene where Hamilton's son gonna have a duel because mm -hmm. this guy was talking shit about Hamilton and his son was like I'm not standing for that shit and you're like and they're like well duels are like duels were illegal and then you're like we're gonna do it in New Jersey and they're like everything's legal in New Jersey so that's where that comes from okay you know this is many many years after Hamilton would have taken place I still think that's kind of the vibe that people have about <laughs> New Jersey if it's going to be legal anywhere, it's, it's going to be, be New Jersey. Jersey or Las Vegas. Yep. Yep. All right. So LeBlanc was brought back to Morristown where he stood trial for nine days, was found guilty of murder only after 20 minutes, and sentenced to death by hanging. That's quick. Yeah. In addition to death by hanging, Judge Gabriel Ford condemned LeBlanc to a post-execution medical dissection. What? Why? Uh-huh. Quote, that you be hung by the neck till you are dead, and it is further considered by the court that after execution is done, your body will be delivered to Dr. Canfield, a surgeon for dissection, and may God have mercy on your soul. 
unquote. Is it literally just like a let's add insult to injury thing or was there a purpose? The, okay, so I sadly got through a lot of these notes before I figured out maybe why the judges are so fucking weird. And that's because Samuel Sayers was a judge. Okay. okay. I mean, it's still not cool, y'all. Uh, especially, you just wait. Okay, so word of the murders and the subsequent hanging spread far and wide, even as far as Philadelphia. And on LeBlanc's execution date, September 6th, 1833, the event had turned into a spectacle with no less than 1,200 people coming to witness his execution and a special gallows had to be constructed just for him in the Morristown Green. So according to a 2014 article by the North Jersey History and Genealogy Center, many traveled from just about every point in New Jersey. Onlookers stood on rooftops and in trees around the green. A special gallows was created by Judge Vale at his ironworks for the event, designed with pulleys to hoist the convicted murderer eight feet off the ground so onlookers could have a better view. Okay. So people like to say, that, you know, with the excess of true crime podcasts. Yeah. That women, especially white women, right. like people in general, but especially women and especially white women have a like morbid fascination with true crime. And this is all really creepy and very morbid. Right. But this shit. Oh, yeah. Is that's also very like, this, this has always been a very morbid country. It's just that now we get it on Spotify. Like, <laughs> Kayla, it gets so much worse. Oh, okay, okay. And also, let's not forget that before people were watching other people hang in America, the British were eating mummies. Oh, God, it's just so fucking weird. I think that that is my, what is it, Roman Empire lately. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'm just like, God, you know, there would be so many more mummies if white people didn't eat them. <laughs> like, what the fuck? What were the health consequences of that? I know it was supposed to be, like, good for you, but what? That's a person. <laughs> Freeze-dried cannibalism. It's not great. It's uh. not great. So a clipping noted from that same article describes the scene as drawing more people than ever before, uh, with folks coming from not just nearby towns but across the state. Horses and wagons blocked the street and could be found tied by the side of the road for a mile or more in every direction, with many attendees bringing their own lunch to enjoy while watching. Yeah, of course. Picnic and a hanging. You know, a delightful Sunday out. So Judge Stephen wrote of the hanging in his diary, quote, The sheriff cut the rope and the weight was dropped. He went up eight feet and struggled two minutes by my stopwatch. He hung 35 minutes and was let down into his coffin and then taken to the courthouse for the surgeons to try out the galvanized battery and to dissect him, unquote. What's a galvanized battery? That's a really good question. I'm not really sure, but I can tell you what they end up doing with the battery. I want to just look it up. Okay. Hold on. I want to know. Galvanic or voltaic cells Use thermodynamically favored redox reaction to generate an electric current. Is this some Frankenstein shit? Uh, not quite, but kind of. <laughs> okay, okay. 
okay. So they're like, we're going to hang you. And uh-huh. then we're going to let the surgeons try to electrocute you back to life. Uh-huh. But then we would just hang you again. If you did that. Well, that's not- what in my, I know it's not going to happen, yeah, yeah. but in my brain, that's where they're like, we're so mad. We want to um, execute you twice. That's what I'm getting. That's the vibes I'm getting here. Um, they. I don't think that they think it's going to bring him back to life. It is just pure electricity experiments on the body. Uh, but it's it's not great. Yeah. Either way. Okay, so here we go. Uh, sure enough, after the execution, LeBlanc's body was delivered to the Morris Courthouse, care of Princeton professor Dr. Joseph Henry and his colleague Dr. Canfield. After a death mask was made, and for those who are unaware of what that is, a death mask is a likeness, typically in wax or plaster, of a person's face after their death, usually taken by taking a a cast or an impression from the corpse. Mm -hmm. So after the death mask was made of LeBlanc's face, various electrical experiments were done on his body. Incisions were made on his arms and legs to expose the nerves, and then electrical currents were applied to see what effects it would have on his muscles, whether or not they would contract. So, involuntarily donated his body to science. Oh, just wait. But that's not all. Is literally God. my next <laughs> every time. <laughs> every time I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You're like, oh, oh no, oh this, no. This is it. This is this the next two sections are where you're going to be sad so after these electrical experiments were conducted his body was then dissected and skinned after which his skin was tanned and made into quote-unquote charming little keepsakes Mm. Uh uh-huh so the newspaper the the jerseyman said quote honorable aw cutler of morristown was said to have had a piece of the skin and Honorable Thomas Carter of Newton has a pocketbook made from it, bearing the endorsement of the Sheriff Ladau that it is a Simon Pure Good, unquote. They also apparently made lampshades out of it. Like, it's just straight up Ed Gein, man. Oh my, but like, sanctioned. Yeah, it's, it's sheriffs and law enforcement and judges who are the ones who have collected all of these Pieces of his skin that have been made into uh, quote unquote charming little keepsakes. Oh my God. It is so bananas. That's so fucked up. Because <laughs> like this brings us back to our first week with mm-hmm. Ed Gein. But it also has the him like bludgeoning people with garden tools, which is very much the last two weeks. It just kind of rounds everything out. Holy shit. Anton LeBlanc was the last public hanging in Morristown. So I guess that's good. Yeah. Went out with a bang on that one. You know, <laughs> got some skin wallets out of the deal. and Skin wallets, uh, a mile radius of like. Traffic backup. Yep. This is the first, first traffic backup <laughs> in New Jersey. <laughs> Not the last. Uh, and then Judge Samuel Sayer, his wife, Sally, and their servant, Phoebe, are buried in the Presbyterian Church Cemetery in Morristown. Okay. So when I mentioned earlier that his wife had two names, her actual name was Sarah. And apparently Sally is a nickname for Sarah, 
which I don't understand. I've never heard that before. Is that a was that a regular thing back then? I googled it because I was like, "Is her name Sally or Sarah?" And then it was like, "Oh, okay. I guess Sally is a nickname for Sarah." Why would you need a nick? They're the same amount of syllables. Syllables. I know. And where do you get Sally from Sarah? And if you're going to just name all your children the same name, so you're going to give them, just kidding, Sarah was actually not part of the the Sayers until she married into it. But I, just, come on, man. It's just ridiculous. So uh, what happened to the house after the 1833 murders? I actually wasn't really able to find anything specific out. It does sound like it stayed a private residence. Probably within the Sayer family because they had, you know, a million relatives that yes. could easily move in there. Um, but, you know, that's that's what I got because I know that you're going to tell me yes. about some more stuff. Because I had a whole thing and I was like, I'm going to go up until like after the family stuff is done. Yeah. And then you had, and then you started. I was like, "That's my my." Oh yeah, you guys missed it. I got a page and a half. I was I was telling the rest of my story, and then Kayla's like, "That's my story." (laughs) I was. I normally don't panic this much, but I. uh, There's not a lot of direct reports of haunting activity at this location. There's, like you know, sometimes we talk about it, and then there's all these lists of people sharing their stories and their experiences. But because it's so old, but then eventually, like you said, became a bank. Yeah. There's not a lot of personal experience stories out there to share. So I, I have a page and a half. All right. And, I'm ready. All right. All right. I mean, at least your font is so much smaller than mine. <laughs> okay. So 217 South Street in Morristown, New Jersey, as Brittany said, is now a TD bank. America's most convenient bank. Not sponsored. Driving up to the building, it's a standard bank-like property. Uh, You would have no idea it was the location of all of what Brittany just discussed. (laughs) But if you worked there, you might find that some of the tragedy still lingers. Uh, But it's not the same building. Mm -mm. It's a different building now. Yeah. Uh, In 1946, the house was transferred out of being a private property. And converted into a restaurant. I couldn't find the name of the original restaurant. They just said a restaurant. I couldn't either. But while it was a restaurant prior to uh, 1957, there were still reports of unusual occurrences that included a man in an overcoat and a top hat that hung out in a darkened corner but would disappear when you tried to approach him. Candles would go out on their own, but then relight themselves. And in the room where Phoebe was killed, it was always cold. Ooh. Like, it wasn't a cold spot. The whole room was was just just cold. Always cold? Yep. There was a devastating fire in 1957. And that's when, from what I can find, the owners of the restaurant that started in 1946 Mm -hmm. got rid of the building. Yes. And then the after the fire, reconstruction began, including additions and expansions to the building while maintaining a tree that had begun growing through the atrium dining area. And they were like, this tree wants to grow here. We'll keep it. I love that. Honestly, if I had a lot of money, 
and I could like build a house in the middle of yeah. wherever, I would definitely build around a tree. Oh, I would love to build around a tree as long as you could guarantee the tree wouldn't like damage the structure. Like the, the what's it called? The foundation of oh, the house. Well, you just can't have a basement. Yeah, you just have to make sure you have the right kind of tree and the right kind of building around it. Yeah. Be cool, though. So part of the tree in the dining area inspired the name that it took up in the 1970s, the Wedgwood Inn. And that is where the AKAs all came in. There's so many AKAs. Yep. So it started as the Sayer House. And uh-huh. then the next thing, they don't list all, like what it was called after that until... It gets called the Wedgwood Inn. Yeah. Because no one apparently remembers what that first restaurant was called. <laughs> no. It obviously wasn't that good, even though it was a decade into it. Uh, that was owned by a William McCosland. Laura Muller posted in 2000 to a site called History's Mysteries, where she said, My mother, Ruth Hadlick, Fladdick, H L A D I K, Fladdick. I don't know. Uh, of all the people to ask how to pronounce something. <laughs> so Ruth worked there as a bookkeeper. Okay. Some, she didn't say this, but some sources claimed that Ruth ended up owning one of the, the wallets. tanned wallets. I read that. Yep. Yep. She, I don't know how, because I feel like that's something that wouldn't be you just easily accessible, but... Oh, do you know how she, she, yes. She inherited it. Oh. I think from her great grandfather. And apparently she would take it out at family functions and tell the gruesome tale. Uh, eventually she did donate it to the historical society. Okay. So it's just to let everyone know Ruth is not a weirdo. <laughs> she in fact donated it to the historical society. So it's in a safe place. Just, she didn't look, not she being just, used like, as it, a wallet. She didn't like shove it in the back of a junk drawer. To no, just, like, for someone to find later and be like, "Oh, what a cool old wallet! I'm going to use this." And it's like, no, that was that was, that was Anton human LeBlanc. Skin. Human skin. Yeah. All right. So Laura Muller says, "I would accompany my mother to the restaurant for the day while she worked when I had off from school. I heard the stories about the one room, Phoebe's bedroom, that could never be heated properly." It was usually colder. So now this was 30 years after like the original reports from that first restaurant. Oh, So Phoebe's okay. room is still, even still after cold. the remodels and reconstruction and additions, still colder than all the other rooms. Okay. Waitresses working in that room would sometimes see Phoebe's reflection in the mirror and not their own. The shock of this reflection cost the restaurant a fair amount of broken dishes and such, as the waitresses would drop their entire trays when witnessing it. Needless to say, when having to traverse this room to reach the bathroom, I would beeline straight through, never even glancing at the mirror. However, I did have some time to notice the distinct drop in temperature. Waitresses also reported the feeling of chilling hands being placed on their shoulders, but found no one behind them. Oh, I, goosebumps, gross, bleh. Mr. McCausland noted that the ghostly time he had when his keys disappeared right off his desk, he searched and searched, but could not find them. He returned to his office and had his back to the desk when he heard his keys drop. Sure enough, he had turned around and there they were, right where he had originally left them. 
again, where where are they hiding? Like, do ghosts just like manifest them out of out of thin air and just bloop bloop? Here you go. Uh, when the restaurant changed hands and names to Society Hill, the owner of that building, David DeGraff, experienced a paranormal event. The night of the grand opening of Society Hill, a punch bowl was being filled for the party. Suddenly, it cracked and split apart, letting the punch pour all over the place. There was no way to explain how a punch bowl could self-destruct in such a way. Okay, in all fairness, I actually... I've seen that happen. That was I, my note. I, I was like, did that to my mom's crystal bowl when I was little. Ooh. Yeah, it had been in the fridge and I was, tr- I was just trying to wash it, okay? And you use warm water to wash it. And when the cold glass got hit with the warm water, it cracked open. And it wasn't until I was much older that I realized how fucking expensive that was. Uh, for me, it was... I mean, it's punch, so it shouldn't have been hot water and a like cold dish. But even then, for all we know, it could have had like a hairline fracture someplace and then right. it was just enough pressure. I know. But the other stories from uh, Laura Muller's experiences were a little ooh, yeah. the touching of the shoulders. I don't like that at all. No. So no, no, no. eventually David DeGraff closed uh, Society Hill. He closed that in 1988. The building then reopened as South Street. And then shortly after that, it closed. And then it became Argyles. And then shortly after that, it closed. And then Phoebe's was one of the names. And then shortly after that, it closed. So (laughs) basically, this building was not uh, maintaining ownership very well. It's like that one business on the corner of Superior Street. And Lake Avenue? Yes, that can never stay it one It never thing. stays open. We've like, known people that have owned it. Yeah. And they own it for like a year and then it closes and then it sits empty for two years until yeah. somebody else rents it. It's like it's cursed. Yeah. Okay. I'm so curious. I know you probably don't have the answer because I didn't see the answer. Phoebe's restaurant. Yeah. Do you think that's in reference to the Phoebe? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Do you think maybe they were trying to appease her? Like, hey, I really want to use this room as private dining, and I need it to not be so freaking cold in here. (laughs) Let me pay homage to you, Phoebe. I think it was just a way to capitalize on the history of the building. I would love to say that whoever the owners were were like, yes, no, let's appease Phoebe. But I think it was more, we're going to capitalize on this. That makes sense. And the reason I think that, so that was between 1988 and then 1996. So it was three other restaurants in eight years. That's just bananas. Yeah. Like that, don't open a restaurant there. It will, it will not go well. So the building opened again in 1996 as Jimmy's. Now, most of the sources I looked at just called it Jimmy's. But, uh, but this that's is, not what it's called. Yep. That's also why, because you mentioned it at the beginning of the story. Yeah. That's always why, That's also why I think that the Phoebe's thing oh, oh, was, was playing on it, because yeah. then Jimmy's was Jimmy's Haunt. A, <laughs> the sign said, steak and seafood, grill, bar, and banquets. Some places described it as a nightclub, cafe, and restaurant. So I don't know if they used the banquet hall for like parties and stuff like that. I know, but when you say nightclub, I think of a very specific thing. Me and too. it has nothing to do with Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> Obviously, you haven't seen the musical. I would That's bump Hamilton I was just going to say. I was just going to say. <laughs> so uh, Jimmy's Haunt's general manager, DJ Carroll, 
who was with the restaurant for more than a decade. I believe he was a manager there as it changed hands some of the previous times. Okay. Is it DJ as in like DJ on Full House or is it like DJ Carol? No, because it's a nightclub. <laughs> no, it's like DJ on Full House. Okay. <laughs> so Deej uh, was with the restaurant for more than a decade and he said he'd never seen any ghosts but had experienced some odd things. Quote, I've seen the chandelier in the library dining room start to swing back and forth by itself. It was late at night and I was closing up all by myself. Ew. We've had computers shut down all at once, things we can't explain. All the light bulbs go out and have to be changed even though they're new. Ew. Also annoying. Very annoying. Over the years, psychics have been brought in to conduct cleansings or exorcisms of what they believe are tormented spirits uh, of LeBlanc and Phoebe. Who's to say if it worked or not? According to New Jersey's Skylands Visitor, psychic medium and author of Awakening the Mystic Gift, Jane Doherty, visited 217 South Street and thinks it makes sense that that building is haunted, not just because of the tragic history of the murders. Okay. Jane says it's one of the most haunted areas of the state. New Jersey is one of the original 13 colonies. The trauma of all that history makes it ripe for more hauntings, especially the northern corner. And the fact that it's a restaurant with a bar helps. Drugs and alcohol provide a common thread for possessions. People who drink and take drugs have a broken aura. They can be possessed. Oh, shit. When I mention that in a seance, someone always blinks. I think she means, like, it catches people off guard, like they didn't realize that. Oh, okay. At least, you know, drunks enjoy one area of protection. Booze can dull the emotions. And according to Jane, ghosts aren't threatening unless you show emotion. Emotions are very powerful and generate energy. The more emotions you show, the more activity is triggered, which we've touched on on multiple stories i feel like i'm just now realizing that would be one of the the benefits of being a sociopath if only if only we're too too emo for this shit (laughs) our cancer and leo energies just generate (laughs) emotions like crazy we're pure emotion really (laughs) when Mueller went back to visit the location who, you know, that's where she said her mother worked. Mm -hmm. She went back when it was Jimmy's in February of 2000. She said that an orb was captured on 35 millimeter film up on the ceiling near the chandelier, which the manager had said swings on its own. Jimmy's was the last location in that building. After TD Bank acquired the property, they tore it down, and that doesn't seem to have stopped the ghosts fully. Wait. I'm starting to be confused. I've seen the pictures of the TD Bank. You're right. It is not the same building, but it was put on the Register of Historic Places in 1980. According to multiple sources, TD Bank tore it down. Oh, yeah. I've seen photos. It's definitely not the same thing. But did they have to pay like extra money or was it maybe like in the National Register of Historic Places, but that was just the property, not the actual house itself? No, it was the house itself because I looked at the actual application. (laughs) Well, and I feel like sometimes maybe that can go past if it hits a certain level of decrepitcy. Yeah, like being condemned. (laughs) Like if it's not, 
Like maybe Jimmy's had to close not because they weren't popular, but because the building just wasn't safe. I, I didn't find anything on that. I didn't either. I just, it just dawned on me now because I definitely saw the photos of the bank. That's going to bug me. It's going to bug me. <laughs> um, visitors to the bank can still expect to see a ghost casually walking around the property. On an average business day, employees say it is not abnormal for objects to move or be discovered in another location than they were originally placed. That's got to be so annoying as a bank person. Usually you really need that stuff to stay put. <laughs> like restaurants, it's whatever. You lost some forks. If you lose like a $100 bill, you're in trouble. Now, personally, I think TD Bank is missing out on some things here. Because I think that they could actually really capitalize if they just forego the corporateness a little bit and really lean into this haunting thing. Yeah. Because if I knew there was a haunted bank in Duluth, I would, I've been with the same credit union for, let's see, that was, was 18. So 17 years? No, that's not right. Yes. Yes. 17. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I've been with the same credit union for a very long time, but if I knew there was a haunted bank, I might switch my account or at least open a new account so I would have two bank accounts. Or you could just quit your job there and just go work at that haunted bank. Yeah, I don't think I'd do that. Okay. I've worked with money before. It's dirty. Money's dirty. I know. Anyway, so that is the haunting reports of TD Bank. Slash Wedgwood Inn, slash the Sayer House, slash Jimmy's Haunt, slash Argyles, slash Phoebe's, <laughs> slash, wait, there was one more, Sa slash South Street. Oh, and Society something. Society Hill. Yes, South Street and Society Hill. A lot of names for that. A lot really. of names. And we still don't know what the first one was. <laughs> Alrighty. I I do think that it's really interesting about the idea that there's a lot of trauma held on to the land mm -hmm. because it was built in the 1700s, in like the mid-1700s. And during my research, I found that the Sayre family is apparently one of the who's who of the original founders of New Jersey. They're one of those families where, like, if people do the 23andMe thing and then they're like, oh, yeah, I got traced all the way back to the Sayer family. Girl, I look so much into the genealogy of the Sayer family. Like, I feel like someone should hire me to do this kind of work because I would organize it in such a beautiful, beautiful graph. Because otherwise I was just kind of like trying to figure it out in my head. I'm like, OK, so this Samuel is related to this one. <laughs> And then they had 17 children. <laughs> Three of them were named Samuel. I'm kidding. That was so, an exaggeration. So but. is it one of those things, though, where, like, people were trying to, like, keep the bloodlines pure, where, like, the family tree is really more of a branch type thing? Uh, no, they always married outside of the family. Like, it didn't seem okay. like there was a lot of, well, I don't know. Not that I could tell overlap. <laughs> Everyone's goddamn name is Elizabeth or <laughs> Sally, a.k.a. Sarah. Um no, it, I just think that it was, uh, they just really had nine names, nine boy names. And they're like, yeah, that. everyone's name is one of these nine. <laughs> so on a skeptic scale of para to normal, para being five, normal being one, what do you think? Uh, 
I'm going to give it a three. Me too. Straight down the middle with a three. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would maybe lean more towards four if it was the original building. I don't, I, it doesn't really bug me that the building is gone and there's still issues. Because, okay. I mean, we cover stories where you see ghosts walk through walls and that's because there used to be a doorway there. True, very so true. So just because the building is gone doesn't necessarily mean that they wouldn't still follow their same paths. Yeah, yep, you're right, you're right, you're right. So knowing that my haunting aspect was a little shorter, uh huh, I decided to read you a little tale of something that's been on my list for a while, but not big enough to have its own section on the podcast. Okay. I think you might have been the one to suggest this to me originally. Okay. Uh, it's a an article from 2020 from the Today Show. Have you heard about the haunted Elsa doll? Yes, I have, but I refused to look into it at all. <laughs> Because you were on a doll kick, and I was like, I got to send this to Kayla. I can't read about this. Just like if I see haunted vehicles. I'm like, "Mm -mm. mm-mm. Mm-mm, not mine. For you, not me. For me, not you. Um, It's, I I still like the doll thing, and that's why I've hung on to it for so long. Uh There was just, I was waiting for an update. Oh, right. Because we started not long after that. Right. We, Mm. We started this not very long after this article came out. Okay. But then there was never any update. So we'll get to that at the end of this article. Oh, wait. Has there been an? No, there oh, hasn't. No. So that's what I'm saying. I've been keeping it on my list, hoping we would find out more. And then we never did. Oh. So for those of you who maybe aren't Disney people and somehow have managed to get through this long of life without knowing who Elsa is. Elsa is a queen, the queen of Arendelle. She sings Let It Go. That, that, let it go, let it go, can't hold me back anymore. I'm not going to try to sing like that. I'm not a Dina Menzel. I've never been able to sing in a Dina Menzel song. No, what her range is insane. Insane. <laughs> anyway, she's amazing. That's who Elsa is. If, you, if you've seen Frozen anything, she's the blonde one. Yes. Um. So there is a story of a haunted Elsa doll that would not let a Texas family go. Oh. Get it? Because uh, she's like, let it go. And she's like, uh-uh. Uh-uh. Uh, so the Madonia family from Houston found that Frozen is truly inescapable. As Emily Madonia wrote on Facebook that an Elsa doll she gave her daughter in 2013 kept finding its way back home after they twice tried to throw it in the garbage. I don't know why this is a common thing with haunted dolls, but it is the worst. It's very, like, Chucky. Yes. Very Annabelle. Ugh. It's it's straight out of a horror movie. Why did they want to throw her away, though? What? Why did they want to throw her away? Well, you'll see. Okay. You will see. Oh, you'll see. To recap, for those of you who have not been following our Elsa doll saga, Matt threw it away weeks ago and we found it inside a wooden bench, Madonia wrote on a Facebook post. Okay. Okay, so we were weirded out and tightly wrapped it in its own garbage bag and put that garbage bag inside another garbage bag filled with other garbage and put it in the bottom of our garbage can underneath 
other garbage bags full of garbage. And I put it in a box. And then I put that box in a box. Yep. Yep. It was very Yzma. (laughs) (laughs) We wheeled it to the curb and it was collected on garbage day. Great, right? We went out of town, forgot about it. Tuesday, Aurelia says, and Aurelia is her daughter. Okay. Mom, I saw the Elsa doll again in the backyard. No. And then she ended with all caps, help us get rid of this haunted doll. I hope people didn't tell her to burn it. Well, Madonia, who did not respond to a request from today for an interview, (laughs) uh, wrote on Facebook Tuesday that the doll, which sings the inescapable Frozen song, Let It Go, when a button on her collar is pushed, began only singing and speaking in Spanish instead of English, even when turned off. There is not a setting on this doll to change languages. Was she still singing Let It Go? Yes. What? So that's what started to freak them out. This is where the whole, like, this is that's actually where the story starts. That's when they started thinking about throwing it away. Because it went from singing in English to in Spanish. The family figured it was maybe like some kind of setting thing. Like, because you figure they probably made multiple dolls that sing in multiple languages because Frozen is a worldwide phenomena. Right. You know? Uh, She said, the doll has some marker on her from my daughter coloring over the years. So I know that the doll that reappeared was the original Mm -hmm. and not a replacement. Most logical thinkers believe it's a prank but i don't understand or how or when it could be done especially because the garbage truck had taken it away it got creepier when the doll stopped singing in spanish and and just started speaking in spanish none of the members of this family i guess speak spanish so they don't even know what she's saying they don't know what she's saying oh god she could be like i will kill you all in your sleep and you'd be (laughs) like i don't Uh, rather than call in, you know, like a doll exorcism, they took the drastic measure of mailing the doll to an online running friend in Madonia's like running group. They mailed it to Minnesota where this person lived without a return address so that he couldn't mail it back. (laughs) What did this guy do to them? Madonia wrote that the doll laughed for 30 seconds straight as she was putting it in the box to mail it, which had never happened before. That is so gross. I hate that so much. Madonia told a radio station, KPRC, if the doll comes back, I might have to open my mind to some of the more supernatural solutions. Elsa arrived safely at the home of Chris Hogan in Minnesota. If on the off chance that this is a person in Minnesota, they didn't say which city that like listens to our podcast. Where's the doll? Give it to me. I want it. Someone out there knows Chris Hogan. Someone. Minnesota is a large state, but it is very small in social circles. Look, do you know Chris Hogan? If we're six degrees away from Kevin Bacon, we're definitely six degrees away from Chris Hogan. So Chris taped the doll to the brush guard of his Jeep. Okay. 
If anything weird happens, I'm welding her to a steel pipe and sinking it in Lake of the Woods, Hogan wrote on his Facebook page. Okay, so northern Minnesota. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. We have to know him. Um, so Madonia reiterated in her Facebook post that she doesn't believe that the creepy Elsa doll is a hoax. Either the doll is haunted or some crazy psychopath has dug the doll out of the garbage which was already taken away and broken into my house and property multiple times. I'm going to go with the haunted thing. Because honestly, the other way is creepier. Well, if she's in a bag, in a bag, in a bag, in a bag, all the garbage in between and at the bottom of the garbage can, which they watched get taken away. Yep. I'm sorry. I think even skeptics will agree. (laughs) Obviously, it's haunted. And then to address your concern... Yeah. That you noted earlier. The reason that she didn't just burn the doll, as many people suggested. Because it would be stupid. She wrote, because it does no good. If there's something in the doll, it will come out. You can't destroy what's inside. Honestly, I don't know if any of this junk is true, but I wanted the doll off my property ASAP. I'm tired of it coming back and hiding in weird places. And now she is just happy that the doll is taped to a Jeep on the other side of the country. It's only 18 hours. Well, no, so Houston, maybe like 20 to 21 hours via 35. It could get back. Yeah. I've done that drive or yeah. most of that drive. I'm sorry. Okay. She wrote, in the end, I'm just a mom and a violinist and a wife and a normal person who doesn't want to be forever known as the haunted doll lady. I am fascinated by the unknown, though, and this whole experience has been pretty entertaining, but I am extremely happy the doll is not here anymore, and I hope to God it stays that way. I need to know whether or not Chris got into some sort of horrific accident, because that is exactly what I would be afraid of if I taped a haunted doll to my Jeep. Jeep owners are weird, man. (laughs) Have you seen the duck thing? Yeah, I have. Like, they just leave each other rubber ducks. Yeah. Because they like each other. It's like a compliment to your Jeep uh-huh. from other Jeep owners. I have seen that on TikTok. And now they're trying to like start this other thing called like Moo Moo Subaru. Because Subaru owners need to like, as, as I'm saying this as a Subaru owner, yeah. we need to like cling and we need to be known as like emphatic as Jeep owners. So they had to come up with their own thing, which is now Moo Moo Subaru, which is cows and not ducks. I don't know. Anyway. But they're so much harder to find cows. So- I don't think anybody would bat an eye at a doll taped to the front of a Jeep because Jeep owners are weird. I I meant that doll is going to make you crash and then you'll die. Nah, it's just going to laugh for 30 second intervals as you drive down the highway. <laughs> or yell at you in Spanish. I mean, hey, if maybe Chris decided he'd had enough. Didn't ever crash, but was just too creeped out by it. And maybe he did throw it in the lake of the woods, which is littering. It's not cool. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. But maybe they did it. I don't know. We don't know because there's been no updates. That is awful. Intermittently, I just go look for it just to see if there's an update I could find to yeah. figure it out. But no, it's just been this the same basic standard stories. And it's Chris Hogan. Yes. Are you looking it up on Facebook? I will confess, I didn't look it up on Facebook. I was looking up news articles. I'm going to guess there's a lot of Chris Hogan's. Ah, but I have a Chris Hogan with... Six mutual friends? I have 14 mutual friends. 
He looks like he could be a Jeep owner. Who are our mutual friends? See profile picture. Are there any Jeeps in your profile picture, sir? I don't see any pictures of Jeeps. I'm just throwing that out there. Well, this is just a first round. Uh, we never know what we'll find. I'll keep looking. But you know what? A lot of musicians are Jeep owners. So this could be that person. And then how funny would that be? It would just be like one degree of. Hmm. Oh. One of the friends is Teague. Oh, okay. I'll have to be like, hey, Teague, I need you <laughs> to talk to this Chris Hogan guy and tell me. Did he have a Elsa doll and is it still attached to his Jeep? And can Kayla have it? Okay, as long as you don't bring it over here, man. I won't. I'll mm. tape it to the front of my Subaru. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. All right. If you have a listener story to share, or if you know Chris Hogan, you can send us an email about it, leftoskeptic at gmail.com. You can also visit our website, www.leftoskeptic.com, and click the listener stories tab at the top of the page. You can also get there through the link tree in our bio. You can choose to include your name or remain anonymous unless you know Chris Hogan. <laughs> because I need to know who I'm talking to here. Um, otherwise, just do whatever makes you comfortable. We just ask that you please include your pronouns. Yes, and as our, I don't know, every six episode reminder, my pronouns are she, her. My pronouns are she, her. You can also follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Left of Skeptic and Facebook at Left of Skeptic Podcast. Well, we want to thank you all for joining us for a, another Spooky Wednesday. Make sure you join us next week for the final episode of True Crime January And this is the actual one. The, the actual, actual final, final episode. episode. <laughs> we love you and appreciate you. It's true, we do. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Okay, bye. Let it go, let it go. Unless you are Chris Hogan, then let us know, let us know. Okay, bye. <laughs>Left of Skeptic podcast is written and hosted by Kayla Moria and Brittany Lind. This week's episode is edited by me, Brittany Lind. The Left of Skeptic music is by Dave Melling and Emily Havoc, and our artwork is by Al LeBlanc. Okay, bye!